Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterton, and I'm excited to be joined again this week by my co-host, Brianne Deppich. How you doing, Brianne? Hey, Neil. It is fantastic to be here. We're joined this week by some really cool executives from the American Association of Railroads. They are here to discuss a really what I think is a really exciting topic, which is addressing climate change within the industry of freight railroads. Yeah, very, very timely and very grateful today to have Teresa Romanowski, who is the Assistant General Counsel at the Association of American Railroads, and Jordan Stone, who is the Assistant Vice President for Government Affairs. Thank you both for joining us. We could maybe start, give our listeners, this is an energy-focused podcast, kind of a little rail 101 to start. Who is AAR? Sure. AAR is the Association of American Railroads. Um, So there are over 630 freight railroads in the United States, but AAR primarily represents seven of the largest railroads in the United States, which are designated as Class 1 railroads. Guess kind of on the West Coast, you know them as Union Pacific and BNSF Railway. On the East Coast, you know them as Norfolk Southern and CSX. And in the center, you know them as Kansas City Southern. And in Canada, you have both Canadian National and Canadian Pacific, which also have presences in the United States. In total, we have 140,000 miles of railroad track in the United States. To give a perspective on that, that's enough to go around the world five and a half times. And all of that railroad track, for the most part, is privately owned and maintained. We spend roughly about over $20 billion per year in private investments in infrastructure and technology as an industry. And it is a very, very resource intensive industry. We invest about 40 cents out of every revenue dollar. But as a result of that, and those kind of long-term investments, we currently have the highest rated infrastructure in the infrastructure report card by the American Society of Civil Engineers. And the industry is constantly growing to meet the anticipated 50% growth in freight transportation demand by 2050. I would be remiss uh, not to flag as an industry. This is a frequent chorus. The successes of all of this are due to the partial deregulation of the rail industry during the Staggers Act, which is a 1980s act that Congress passed, which has allowed us to really improve overall railroad performance and reduce rail rates. Prior to 1980, railroads were in pretty bad shape. One of the things that I always think is a great image there is we used to measure things called standing derailments, which were where the train would literally just slide off the track standing still. That's not the case in our modern industry anymore. We have the world's best freight rail system in the United States, and we're proud to have it that way. Thank you so much. That's actually really, really helpful info. So that actually leads me to our next question. I don't think most people, at least maybe myself, what most people don't know is that freight railroads are more fuel efficient than than trucks for shipping. They also have a much lower emissions profile, which I thought was fascinating. Would you mind walking us through some of these statistics on the lower fuel side of things? I know I, like I said, for one, was pretty surprised to see some of this information. Yeah, sure. Um, This is Teresa. I'd be happy to do that. So again, Jordan mentioned that we're really proud of our efficiency and our sustainability, especially with comparison to other modes of shipping freight. Freight railroads in the United States on average move one ton of freight, nearly 500 miles per gallon of fuel. That means we're about three to four times more fuel efficient than trucks 
with a single train removing several hundred trucks from the nation's congested highways. Moving freight by rail instead of truck lowers greenhouse gas emissions by about 75% on average. And every year we're making more investments to improve that over time. Looking at sort of some of the issues and challenges that you guys deal with from a policy standpoint, you know, I know the Surface Transportation Board, STB, that's your economic regulator dealing with rate and competition. Federal Railroad Administration deals with safety. But in terms of you know, some of the environmental improvements and upgrades the industry has been making. What What is the driving force behind that? Is that is that a regulatory push? Is that coming from customers? Is that coming from shareholders? What What is motivating the industry to, to really address its carbon footprint? I think that's a really great question. And the answer is probably a little bit of all of the above. I think our investors and our shareholders are increasingly interested in what we're doing with respect to climate change and reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. So that's a big focus. Everyone's interested in reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. So the further we can reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, that benefits our customers, investors, and shareholders and portfolios as well. So everyone involved in the rail industry and the freight industry benefits from us reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. We're also just really proud of our environmental record, being able to further reduce greenhouse gas emissions and decarbonize the rail industry and the freight industry are really important to our members. And you can see that reflected in the investments that they've been making and the research and development that they've been working on with respect to lower or zero emission locomotives. Just to piggyback off of that really quickly, I'd also say in addition to our regulations and our shareholders, uh, railroads also want to take an active part in reducing our emissions and playing a role in addressing climate change. That is something that is driving the industry and be a good steward of not only our country and our freight movements, but also the planet. So following up a little bit on your customers. So, you know, my background obviously is coming from the energy space, deal a lot with electric utilities. I know electric utilities are big customers of the railroads. How much has the energy transition that's impacting electric utilities had an effect on the railroad industry. For instance, consumption of coal in the U.S. is down significantly. Railroads ship a lot of coal. How do those sort of factors amongst your utility customers impact their decision-making? Well, I will say, you know, we are, as common carriers, we are required to move any freight that is tendered at a reasonable price or a reasonable movement. So, I I mean, I will say that the short term, at least, we have seen an uptick in coal movements as natural gas has increased in price. But I guess to kind of address your question head on, that coal, of course, has been going down significantly and rail has really stepped in and moved into the intermodal sector heavily recently to basically offset that and compete for a a different commodity. And intermodal, just for everybody's awareness, are the containers that you see on the back of trucks and the back of trains uh, or on on train cars. And that is a a big area of growth that we are emphasizing right now. The first three months of 2021 were the best intermodal years we've had on record. Here recently, this last quarter was our third best intermodal quarter or the first quarter of the year. It's a huge point of growth and something that we believe that we can compete in. In growing the rail industry's intermodal sector, we have started to emphasize, you know, being able to move trains somewhat more quickly and have additional fluidity throughout the network. And that is something that will also involve some regulations that we hope to be able to incorporate new technologies so that we can keep fluidity throughout our network, one of which being automated track inspection. 
So one thing I wanted to touch on is you guys have called on lawmakers to adopt certain policies to increase rail efficiency. But I'm curious to know who in Congress is doing what when it comes to railroads? What committees specifically are tasked with overseeing freight railroads? And what things can they do in the short and long term to help you guys increase efficiency and deliver on some of your low emissions goals? Sure. So our two primary, well, four primary regulators in Congress right now are the, on the Senate side, the Commerce Committee and the Senate Appropriations Committee. And then on the House side is the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee and the House Appropriations Committee. We just recently got through uh, the bipartisan infrastructure legislation. That's, that is the major surface transportation reauthorization for the FRA side of legislation for us. It's the successor to the FAST Act. And we were super thrilled with what was included in there. I can't say enough how great it was to see that Congress was able to come up with some bipartisan solutions that didn't overly regulate the rail industry and impose standards that could could harm our ability to compete. Freight transportation in the rail industry in general competes in the freight transportation sector and every regulatory hurdle and impediment that is placed on the rail industry does cause a shift in the freight transportation sector generally. And generally we focus on that diversion going towards trucks, which are probably not only our greatest customer, but also our greatest competitor in the short term. Any diversion that occurs with trucks will end up increasing greenhouse gas emissions generally. I think the stat that we frequently use is if 25% of a highway freight currently moving at least 750 miles went by rail, annual greenhouse gas emissions would fall by 13.1 million tons. That's the equivalent of about 2.6 million cars for a year, which is a pretty substantial amount. But in terms of things that we are proactively working on in Congress to reduce our emissions going forward, one of the things that we are working on heavily is with the Appropriations Committee. Our hope is that we can really get some partnerships going between the Department of Energy, the FRA, and freight railroads and their locomotive manufacturers. I'm not sure how familiar folks are with locomotive manufacturers, but we have two in the United States, Progress Rail, which is owned by Caterpillar, and then Wabtec. Those are two companies that are working very, very hard to develop both in the short term, some lower emission models uh, where we incorporate greater amounts of biodiesel under existing locomotives so that we can lower our emission profile in the short term, but also develop battery electric and hydrogen locomotives in the long term so that we can reach a zero emission future. Right now, both the hydrogen and battery electric in terms of mainline operations, which are kind of what most of the American public experiences with locomotives, it's the thing that zooms zooms by on the track, moving the train. Those are still pre-commercial in their ability to meet kind of the safety, functionality, and reliability standards that the rail industry needs. And our hopes are that we can get some additional research funding from the Appropriations Committee to really accelerate that so that the rail industry can meet its emission reduction goals in the long term that all of our members have committed to through the Science-Based Targets Initiative. I mean, that's really fascinating. And I'm not certain that I was familiar with that. So we're talking electrified locomotives, almost making the transitions like to, to EVs, how would they refuel? How would they charge? 
That is actually still something that is being uh, worked on. I mean, I can tell you right now for hydrogen, Canadian Pacific in Alberta, Canada, is a hydrogen demonstration program going on where they're running locomotives between Calgary and Edmonton. One end, I, I believe it's the, the Calgary end, is using green hydrogen and the other Edmonton is using blue hydrogen from natural gas. I know BNSF has also agreed to pursue a pilot on this as well. In terms of battery, so battery has reached a production level. However, those locomotives are more akin to what we know as switcher locomotives in the rail industry. And those are locomotives that build trains in yards. They move cars within yards in order to build out a train. And so Union Pacific has purchased 20 of those locomotives and Canadian National has purchased one locomotive. This was following BNSF pursuing a demonstration program in which they used one of these locomotives in mainline operations, but it was in as part of a hybrid consist where there were multiple diesel locomotives that also were on the train. So in terms of building out a yard network in which we could charge these throughout. We're not quite there yet, but that's kind of where we are demonstration wise. Yeah. And if I can just add, I think one key is we're thinking about decarbonizing the rail industry and frankly, all transportation in the United States is it requires a lot of infrastructure. You have to have long, all the different lines, the rail lines, you have to have charging infrastructure in place so that you can recharge those locomotives. In some places that's easy because you're moving from one large rail yard to another large rail yard where you might have that infrastructure in place. But in other cases, when you're moving train across desert, you probably don't have that infrastructure in place currently. And so that's that's a challenge that, that the industry is working through. And similarly, a locomotive, a diesel locomotive can be refueled in approximately 20 minutes. It takes a lot longer to recharge a battery electric locomotive. And so if it's going to take four, five, six hours to recharge that locomotive, that's a significant impact on our operations and how things are moving in and out of yards and on the supply chain generally. So these are all things that it's going to take a little while to, to figure some of this stuff out before we can really start turning over the, the locomotive fleet beyond a demonstration project situation. Yeah, I often say the rail industry is justifiably labeled as hard to decarbonize, but we are we are working diligently to overcome that. This actually is a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you guys about next. We are in the midst of a severe energy crisis right now, and one that has touched off record high fuel prices, the highest, at least at least for drivers that we've seen in, in modern memory. Does the freight rail industry see this as an opportunity for you guys to step in to really highlight your role as the most fuel efficient form of ground transportation and shipping? And have you seen overtures from the Biden administration to that effect? I mean, like we've said before, I think we're really proud of our fuel efficiency. And there's a lot of research and effort underway to even further improve that fuel efficiency. So there are technologies we can put in place. There's automation that could be put in place. If we can get the approval from the federal government that would further reduce our fuel usage, which not only reduces costs in shipping, but it also reduces greenhouse gas emissions. So yeah, this is definitely someplace that I think we have a lot to say. And I think we have a significant competitive advantage against other modes of freight transportation. In, in terms of the Biden administration's overtures and kind of overall policy approach to increase 
encouraging freight rail growth. I would actually, unfortunately, have to say it's quite the opposite in terms of our ability to compete long term and kind of in the in the short term. The Biden administration's competition EO that came out in July of last year, so I guess we're approaching a year, encouraged the Surface Transportation Board to move forward with a rulemaking that has long been dormant that deals with reciprocal switching, which is a rulemaking that will effectively require rail railroads to trade off cargo with other railroads that they would otherwise be able to move themselves from point A to point B. They will effectively require a point B and add a point C to to movements. And there are significant concerns within the rail industry that this will have big impacts on our operational efficiency and network fluidity. Let's just be honest, everybody in the freight transportation space right now is struggling in terms of supply chains. Railroads right now are having significant workforce shortages and are working diligently to hire up. But like every every business right now, I will say we are not an industry for the faint of heart. It is hard work that is outside and is all across the country and includes outside in North Dakota in the winter. And so that is, we're running into problems there. We're also the middle mile of America. So let's say something comes in at the ports, you need a drayage truck movement in order to get to the rail yard. Generally, after the railroads move something, you need a drayage truck, which is kind of a short haul trucking movement to come and pick that up and move it to a warehouse. So if there is a chassis shortage or a driver shortage or a truck shortage, or there's insufficient warehouse space, the rail industry's operations can be interrupted by that. Our concern here is by adding additional complexity with a switching rule, we're adding an even more difficulty to this. I can tell you the Intermodal Association of America shares our concerns here. But additionally, um, in terms of being able to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, switching will require more yard time and more stops for trains to basically trade off traffic. And as a result of that, we have the National Wildlife Federation, Conserve America, and Third Way all expressing concerns with this. Because of those stops and starts, you're necessarily going to increase the greenhouse gas emissions of the rail industry. Another example of this right now is a pending rulemaking that we have with crew size at the FRA. All class one freight railroads right now operate with two people in the cab of a locomotive, a engineer and a conductor. However, many short lines, which are smaller railroads in the United States, operate with one person in the cab of a locomotive. Freight rail in in Europe is one person in the cab of a locomotive, and passenger rail operations throughout the United States have one person. This rulemaking would require that freight railroads have two people in the cab of a locomotive indefinitely. Both the Obama and Trump administration have dealt with this rulemaking, and both have found that there was no data to support this regulation. And even the NTSB has found that there's insufficient data to justify this regulation. Just to flag, the rail industry believes this needs to remain in collective bargaining with our unions. But the ultimate consequence of this is not necessarily that having two people in the cab of the locomotive is going to increase our greenhouse gas emissions from the rail industry. The problem is ultimately modal shift. Because trucks right now are being actively encouraged to automate as quickly as possible, it makes us less competitive in the 
long term, which means more freight will shift to trucks. And as a result of that, as we've discussed previously, we'll end up with more greenhouse gas emissions, not just from the trucks themselves, but also the highway congestion that they cause. Railroads have to be able to innovate in order to compete. And this is just one of those issues we've had with the Biden administration. Kind of interesting. It seems like you guys are facing a lot of the challenges that other players in the energy space are, where sort of seeing a collision of forces where there's this effort to decarbonize, but there are other policy objectives that may actually inhibit that. And this seems to be along those lines, that policies that I'm certain are tied to employment and safety and other factors may actually harm the Biden administration's decarbonization that's very much correct. I will say there is no safety justification for the crew size rulemaking. But yes, we are definitely running into issues where the Biden administration has put forth policies that make it more difficult for us to decarbonize. Our rail network is part of infrastructure, and the Biden administration has gone to great pains to promote building out infrastructure within the United States. But at the same time, EPA and CEQ is kind of pushing back on some of the changes, the regulatory changes that were meant to incentivize infrastructure build out and to make the process a little bit more smoother from the permitting and regulatory side. So that's another problem that the railroads are facing. It's hard to maintain your infrastructure, your tracks, your rail yards with NEPA reviews take, you know, five to seven years. We just, it's hard to adapt and nimbly react to consumer demand when things just take so long to get through the permitting process. Well, are you guys in a position where you're needing to expand your infrastructure or is this about maintaining existing tracks? Well, in some cases, our members are expanding infrastructure, so building new intermodal rail yards, expanding those rail yards to benefit the supply chain issues and trying to alleviate some of the congestion in the supply chain, but also maintaining track. Bridges need maintenance. Trains go over bridges. We need to constantly be inspecting and repairing our track in order to make sure that there are no accidents and to keep our safety record as great as it is. So it's a, it's a little bit of both. The bigger infrastructure projects like the intermodal rail yards, those are the ones that just take so long to get through state and local permitting and then federal permitting that it just it makes things very complicated and it increases the risk of litigation as well. Was there anything included in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that Congress passed last year that could alleviate some of these challenges? Most importantly, probably the the one federal decision codification was pretty impactful for us. Any timeline that can actually realistically be held is good in terms of that. So certainly, I think the last couple of questions have made clear there's a lot of opportunity in this space. But as you both mentioned, it's also pretty complex. What are some of the most important messages that you want to drive home for our listeners? And in broad strokes, what are some of the most important short-term goals that you guys really hope to deliver on? In broad strokes, I just I hope all of our listeners understand that rail really is the most energy efficient and environmentally sustainable mode of transporting freight over land. We're very proud of our record, our environmental bona fides and sustainability, and on our efforts to further improve that, the investments that everyone in the rail industry is making right now to further decarbonize. We're extremely proud of that. The only thing I, I would really highlight is the rail industry's ongoing work on biodiesel and kind of the important role that biodiesel can play in us meeting short-term targets. As I mentioned before with Progress Rail and WabTech, we are working to increase the blends that can be used in, in our 
different models of locomotives. A locomotive is not a ubiquitous thing. There, there are many, many types of models that go out. And so we are working in order to get certification to maintain our warranties under those locomotives to increase the blends uh, that we can use biodiesel for. And I can't emphasize enough how important that's going to be in the short term. Did you guys want to speak to the biodiesel aspect a little bit more? Sure. So the rail industry is really interested in both renewable diesel and biodiesel. Right now, renewable diesel is really hard to come by if you're not in California. And that's because California's low carbon fuel standard, which basically makes the purchase of renewable diesel economical. It brings the price down to be on par approximately with diesel fuel. And so most of the supply of renewable diesel within the United States is funneled directly to Canada and to a lesser extent, Oregon. We're starting to see some of the other states trying to enact legislation similar or incentive programs similar to the low carbon fuel standard. I'm hopeful that if those programs do get passed and are put in place, that'll increase the, both the supply and the distribution of renewable diesel more broadly across the country. Renewable diesel is important, I should mention, because it is basically a drop-in fuel. There's no chemical difference between regular diesel and renewable diesel. And so that's a huge interest for us because at least one of our manufacturers allows very high blends of renewable diesel before voiding a warranty. With respect to biodiesel, it's not exactly a drop-in fuel, but it but it works. There are some kind of issues that need to be worked out with respect to extreme weather, whether it be cold or heat. We're hoping that in the coming months and, and year or so, we'll start to see an increase production of biodiesel. And through that increased testing and approval of higher blends of both renewable and biodiesel shortly. I want to just real quick touch on, you know, probably the most prominent energy issue or just policy issue Americans are facing today. Brianne touched on it earlier, and that's high gas prices. And, you know, one of the challenges that we're seeing in this high gas price environment is that supply issues, there's extraction issues, uh, but there's also offtake and shipment issues and challenges, you know, with pipeline congestion and the like. And so there's been a lot of talk more recently about crude by rail. I'm an energy guy. I'm not as up to par on what's been happening in that space. You know, what, what really is rail's capacity to move crude and can the industry play a role in, in alleviating some of the pressure at the pump that Americans are currently facing? So I think in terms of being able to meet market demand, the answer is yes. And the rail industry as a, a recent exemplar to, to show the industry's ability to be flexible and respond. And that was with kind of the boom of Bakken crude. I can tell you, I could get you the exact numbers, Neil, and I'm happy to follow up, but the industry responded with a significant amount of infrastructure and locomotives to get get that fuel to market. And I, I believe the rail industry could do that now if there was sufficient demand and request for us to do so. Really appreciate you both joining us for the Plugged In podcast. You know, we like to dive into substantive issues, which we've clearly done, but we always like to close with something light so our listeners can kind of gain some perspective from the guests that we have on. Working for this industry, it, it seems with all this technological change and cultural transition, railroads are kind of one of the last sort of mom and apple pie businesses out there. Railroads and Major League Baseball, I think the law couples you guys together as being exempt from antitrust laws. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to work for such a historically and traditionally important industry? I mean, I can say that when I joined the railroads, I while it is perceived as kind of a historic, historic impactful industry for the railroads. It's also 
it is a constantly evolving industry as well. And the industry is working to incorporate so many different technologies, whether that be automated track inspection, wayside detectors, you name it. And they're always working to increase their safety first and foremost. I can say that it is as much like working for a tech company as it is a, as a freight company. We're constantly working to test new technologies. And I, I have to say that that evolution is exciting and fun. And that is what I I guess I'd leave people with. Yeah. And I'll say I came from a large law firm. I have always been an environmental attorney. And so the, the flavor of law that I practiced at a law firm is completely different from what I do at AAR. I have a young son. And so when I joined AAR, you know, like my knowledge of the railroads was kind of like Thomas the Train. That was about my level of sophistication. But it has been just amazingly interesting to learn about the railroads and how truly sophisticated their the level of data management and tracking and technology that all of our members have in-house and their skill sets and the engineers. I mean, these are just really sophisticated operations. And I think a lot of people in the US don't recognize just really how unbelievably complex these systems are. And, and so I've very much enjoyed learning more about the rail industry and learning from folks at our members about all of their issues and all of the new developments. That and getting to understand, I, I can't emphasize enough, we touch every sector of the economy and really get to move all of it. And you really get to see how the economy is moving and responding. And it, it's a fascinating industry to work for. Jordan, Teresa, it has been a pleasure learning all about railroads, speaking to you guys. Wanted to thank you both so much for chatting and for appearing on this week's episode of Plugged In. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to Season 2 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.